For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Meta Sutta uh, uh, uh. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another, even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child. So with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri, to the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, maha, prajna, paramita.
When he is ready, Tagen will introduce tonight's speaker. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. I'm uh, very honored and happy to have with us tonight on Martin Luther King Day, uh, Hosan Alan Sanaki to speak. Um, many of you know Alan. Uh, he's an old friend, old friend of mine and an old friend of Ancient Dragon. He's spoke numbers of times at our old storefront temple on Irving Park Road way back in the old days. And he's been, uh, he's spoken also on our Zoom in the last couple of years, a number of times. Um, Alan is now the abbot of Berkeley Zen Center, which is one of the most important Zen Sanghas in America, in my opinion, and uh, a center for uh, Suzuki Roshi lineage, particularly. Um, Alan is a very experienced Dharma teacher, uh, but also he's uh, probably of all the Zen teachers I know of in America has, has the most international reach. Uh, his the, the breadth of Alan's work is, you know, amazing to me. He's um, taught and uh, practiced actively in India, in Thailand, in Burma, in Japan. He has disciples in Germany. Uh, Alan is also a very accomplished musician. Uh, he, uh, I recommend his CD, Everything is Broken. Um, really wonderful, with a number of really good Dharma songs as well as other good songs. I first got to know Alan very well back in 1968 when he was part of a band that rehearsed regularly in my apartment. Um, Alan is also an activist, a long-term activist in many different realms. Uh, again, back in 1968, we were both part of uh, an occupation of uh, five buildings at Columbia University for a week, at the end of which, while well, we were protesting the Vietnam War and also institutional racism, uh, at the end of the week, we were both among, among 700 people arrested. I, Alan still has a bump on the back of his head, which he doesn't show often, but it's from a police billy club uh, during that arrest anyway. Uh, Alan and I were later arrested together in 2003, much later, uh, at the San Francisco Federal Building, protesting this stupid and hugely damaging invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan by George W. Bush. Uh, anyway, amongst all everything else, Alan is an extremely accomplished scholar of Martin Luther King, uh, both his both Dr. King's activism and um, spiritual teachings and philosophy. So I spoke yesterday morning a little bit about Dr. King, about his campaign for voting rights and his words about the racist filibuster, which is now threatening to uh, take us back to a time worse than before Dr. King's voting rights campaign. Um, I also spoke about Dr. King's anti-war work and uh, uh, teachings about militarism and how they were spiritually damaging to our country. Uh, There's a lot more to say about Dr. King a lot, uh, and Alan will talk tonight, amongst other things, about um, Beloved Community, which is Dr. King's teaching about Sangha. So thank you very much for being here, Alan. I hope you're, hope you're well. Thank you, Tagen, and good evening, Bodhisattvas. It's wonderful to be here with you. Um, I'm thinking that Dr. King, I had three sort of encounters with him in in my life twice of them twice i actually uh saw him in person uh, and i wonder if have did any of you see dr king some of you are of an age where you might have david did um you know i saw him for the first time uh uh at a synagogue in uh my hometown suburbs of New York. Uh, He was there uh, giving a speech for civil rights and and fundraising. And then I was at the March on Washington uh, in 1963. Uh, We had a a really uh, wonderful group of friends who were, uh, those of us who are still on the planet are still friends. Uh, 
you know, that we all went down there together to the march. It was, it was quite a, a remarkable and overwhelming event. And then the third uh, occasion was uh, to recognize that the, the rebellion at Columbia University that Tigan mentioned was uh, catalyzed by his assassination in April of 1968. Uh, I don't know that it would have happened uh, if that assassination hadn't happened. And so um, he it was figured just that a few way. weeks after. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, it was, it was a direct, actually, all the events kicked off uh, out of a, uh, uh, an event where uh, there was a protest against uh, a, a service that was conducted by uh, the university officials for him. And they were called to account uh, for uh, their complicity in the war and their complicity in gentrifying and taking over buildings and neighborhood. Anyway, that's not what I want to talk about today. But um, somewhere later, uh, probably about 20 years ago, I began to really study Dr. King and, and read, read his uh, sermons, read his writings, and think about the correspondences between uh, his perspective on humanity and on nonviolence and uh, what we take from our Buddhist traditions. So I want to read you something just to, to start off. And I realize that the time is, is sort of short tonight. So I'm going to have to be concise. And I want to leave some time for discussion and questions uh, that you may have. But in his last book, uh, so that book is called Where Do We Go From Here? It was published in 1967. And there, kind of the, a key piece in that was called The World House. And this is how it begins. Some years ago, a famous novelist died. Among his papers was found a list of suggested plots for future stories, the most prominently underscored being this one. A widely separated family inherits a house in which they have to live together. That's really, that's actually a pretty interesting idea for a, for a story or a novel. Uh, a widely separated family inherits a house in which they have to live together. And Dr. King says, this is the great new problem of mankind. We have inherited a large house, a great world house, in which we have to live together. Black and white, Easterner and Westerner, Gentile and Jew, Catholic and Protestant, Muslim and Hindu, I would say, and Buddhist. Uh, a family unduly separated in ideas, culture, and interest, who, because we can never live, never again live apart, must learn somehow to live with each other in peace. Um, I can't think of a time since the time of the Vietnamese or the Vietnam War when this country has felt more divided. Uh, when we are living in this in this world house, we're living in this big house, uh, and the divisions are so sharp and so acrimonious uh, that it, it seems sometimes that there's no middle ground. And this is, this is really difficult and challenging. And this is what Dr. King's view of the beloved community uh, is a corrective for. And he has he has a method uh, for coming to that, which which we'll talk about at least briefly. But he also has an analysis of what are the core problems, and I'd like to I'd like to share that with you um, because they're they're very interesting. 
uh, in Buddhism, we have the three poisons uh, the, of greed, hate, and delusion. And those are at the center of the wheel of uh, birth and death. Uh, and they're really the motor that runs that wheel. And often they're depicted as uh, a rooster representing greed, a snake representing hatred, and a pig re representing delusion going around in a circle, each one biting the tail of the other. Uh, and uh, these are the three poisons which, uh, which run our life of suffering. So it's very interesting because Dr. King identified at the core of what's problematic in our world. Uh, he, he talked about the triple evils. And those triple evils are poverty, racism, and militarism. And I think we can see a correspondence between those triple evils and the three poisons. So the cause of poverty is greed. Uh, and, you know, poverty includes homelessness, unemployment, hunger, malnutrition, illiteracy, infinite mortality, infant mortality, uh, slums, and there's nothing new about it. It's been in our human vision throughout much of society. What Dr. King says is what's new is that we actually have the resources and the tools to end it. Uh, that we look at, if we look at our society, the division of resources, the division of wealth is vaster than it has ever been. And so if there's extreme poverty, it's because there is also extreme wealth and concentration of wealth. Um, this is the another way of framing the Buddha's core principle of dependent origination is because this arises, that arises. Because this doesn't arise, that doesn't arise. Because great wealth exists in the form of greed within certain classes of people, there is great poverty. They go together. But the resources that we have, conceivably, are for a more equitable division of resources. And if that were the case, um, it's very possible that people could live uh, broadly a, a life of uh, appropriate means, appropriate consumption, appropriate earning, and enjoy their lives. Uh, Dr. King says, ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. No individual or nation can be great if it does not have concern for the least of its people. And uh, I would say pretty clearly that has not been the, uh, the general rule in our society. So, again, I see this correspondence between poverty and greed. And racism, racism is just one of the manifestations of, of hatred, uh, which includes uh, 
prejudice, apartheid, ethnic discrimination, anti-Semitism, sexism, colonialism, homophobia, uh, ageism, discrimination against those who are disabled. All these, all these are uh, manifestations of of hatred of both uh, fear of what one perceives as otherness and uh, a contempt for the fundamental value of life. A rejection of the principle that uh, you, each being, him or herself, is Buddha. That's the value that we have in Buddhism, that everyone is uh, everyone is an expression of Buddha, of Buddha nature, of Buddha reality, um, whether they're Buddhist or not. Um, and you could say the same thing. Everyone is the embodiment of, of Christ. And you can go across the board. The, the thing is that um, there's no one race that is the center of value, or what King says, that one, it opposes the arrogant assertion that one race is the center of value and the object of devotion before which other races must kneel in submission. It is the absurd dogma that one race is responsible for all the progress of history and alone can sure, assure the progress of future. Racism is total estrangement. All of these forms of discrimination are total estrangement. It separates not only bodies, but minds and spirits. Inevitably, it descends to inflicting spiritual and physical homicide on the outgroup. So this is where hatred leads. And its manifestation is often, one, one expression of its manifestation is in war or militarism, uh, which is perhaps systemically the greatest delusion that we can imagine. War, imperialism, domestic violence, rape, terrorism, human trafficking, etc. Uh, what Dr. King says, the true revolution of value will lay hands on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. This way, he was talking in 1967, this way of burning human beings with napalm of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of object, injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of people normally humane. Uh, all of these things, they were going on. 1967 was now um, 55 years ago. It's astonishing to, to think about that. Because for some of us, I think it, it seems it seems uh, pretty current in our minds. Uh, but the realities of war, the realities of these very systemic uh, forms of violence that Dr. King speaks about, um, they're really no different now. In fact, if anything, uh, they're worse and the dangers are greater. So, this is a description. What is his answer to this? His answer is basically the fundamental practice of nonviolence. Nonviolence calls for courage, uh, it calls for action. 
it seeks to build understanding and friendship. What he says again and again is that the end result of nonviolence is redemption and reconciliation. The purpose of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. And the beloved community itself is is not a utopian goal. Uh, He believed that it was an achievable goal and it was not devoid of conflict. Dr. King's beloved community was a global vision in which all people can share in the wealth of the planet. Uh, Poverty, hunger, and homelessness would not be tolerated because international standards of human decency would not allow it. Racism and all forms of discrimination would be replaced by sisterhood and brotherhood, and international disputes would be resolved by peaceable conflict resolution and the reconciliation of adversaries instead of military power. So this doesn't mean that somehow all conflict would disappear. Uh, Conflict is inevitable. Conflict is creative. And it's going to appear in in our human interactions. But what Dr. King believed was that conflicts could be resolved through the methods and a commitment to nonviolence. And we think of this, I often think that, you know, the the destruction that we rained on uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, that we spent trillions and trillions of dollars on, um, just wasted, just poured down the drain. What would that, what would the effect have been of a policy of generosity? You know, what would, what would the effect been, have been if we said, okay, instead of spending this money on bombs, we're going to provide you, we're going to provide a whole society with food, medicine, and education. And we're going to do that. We're going to commit to this for 10 years and see what kinds of societies and communities arise out of that. It would have been a lot cheaper. And there would have been so many fewer deaths. And I think this is, you know, this is embodied in the uh, in the first paramita, in dana paramita, generosity, just giving. So, I just what I want to do also just briefly is just give you an overview uh, of the steps of nonviolent social change. And this is just going to be very brief, but one thing that I take to heart is a line from Genjo Khan, Dogen's Genjo Khan, where he says, there are many features in the dusty world and the world beyond conditions. You see and understand, although there are many features in the dusty world and the world beyond conditions, you see and understand only what your eye of practice can reach. So your eye of practice is also your body of practice. So we call what we do practice. And what that means is we are placing our bodies and our minds in the circumstances of change. 
and this is this is a f- extremely important element, a key element of uh, of the path of nonviolence. It's not just an idea. It's also it's a methodology in which one has to be trained. In other words, one has to open one's eye of practice to nonviolence. So Dr. King outlined six steps for nonviolent social change. Uh, and they're steps that emphasize love in action. Let me just go through them very quickly. First step is information gathering. It's study. These are very much, once you really look at these, they're really like the factors of enlightenment also. I'm, I'm very interested, I'm always interested in, in building correspondences to the Buddhist tools that we have uh, to integrate them, uh, not necessarily to create, you know, not necessarily to just, uh, just to absorb other systems, but to recognize where there are where there are resonances and correspondences. So anyway, the first the first step is information gathering. It's study. It's investigation, which is one of the which is one of the factors of enlightenment. Uh, you look at it from all the different standpoints that you can, all the different facets. And you also, in that investigation, you investigate yourself. You investigate whatever it might be that I am contributing to the conflict and recognize that that's a possibility. Very often what I see in conflict is, uh, you know, people come to have, you know, they want to have a mediation or they're feeling conflict with another member of the community and what they want is somebody in so-called authority to please stop him from doing that. That's not what we're doing. So I turn, I generally try to turn them back to look at themselves before we take it any further. And then we talk. The second step is education. Uh, it's essential to inform others, including the opposition, about your issue so you know what's on the table. You know, before you go to the table, you spell out these things so you, you have an understanding of what each other's issues are, even if those issues don't necessarily correspond. The third element is personal commitment to daily check and affirm your faith in the philosophy and methods of nonviolence, to investigate your hidden motivations and your biases, and prepare yourself to accept suffering if that's what arises in, in pursuit of justice, that it's not all going to be uh, sweetness and light that we may suffer to come to some kind of reconciliation to bring sides together. So that's where it really calls for training, that the training, you know, often in in nonviolence movements, and maybe many of you may have had training in nonviolence before some civil disobedience, uh, and it's essential. Early civil rights workers, before they went to integrate uh, lunch counters or went on freedom rides, they would go for several weeks and study nonviolence. And they did that with role play. And when you do role play, it's very interesting because when you do that role play, you recognize that you have that oppressor within yourself so easy to bring it forth it's surprising and kind of alarming but this is part of the work of this personal commitment that you have to look in the dark corners of yourself 
and make sure that you see what's there. Otherwise, you're going to act it out. The fourth step is negotiation. Before you engage in anything, you sit down with uh, your opponent and you, uh, what he says is using grace, humor, and intelligence, confront the other party with a list of injustices and a plan for addressing and, and resolving these, adjust, these injustices. Look for what is positive in every action and statement the opposition makes. Do not seek to humiliate your opponent, but to call forth the good in the opponent. So in this negotiation, which I'm sure many of you have had some experience, the whole process of negotiation or mediation, if you will, is about the making of very small agreements. Just the agreement to sit down in the room together is a step. Where you're going to sit in this room in relationship to each other is a step. Each time you make a step, you move towards some kind of potential healing. But you may not get there. And so that you come to the fifth step, which is direct action. Direct action uh, is what happens when your opponent isn't willing to see the justice of your requests or demands. And these actions bring forth the tension that exists within the situation. And this is often where the most difficult stage because uh, you may be invoking violence on yourself uh, with the vow not to retaliate. And with the training, this is where the training comes in. Again, if you've trained sufficiently, you understand how not to retaliate, even though the, all the fibers of your body may be calling for it. This is why nonviolence is much more difficult than violence because you are putting yourself in a position where you may have to accept the blows. You may have to accept violence. Um, but at the same time, what you're doing is you're invoking moral pressure on your opponent to work with you in resolving the injustice. And the fifth, the sixth step is reconciliation. Uh, reconciliation seeks friendship and understanding with the opponent. I'm not so sure about friendship always, honestly. Uh, but I would say it, it builds relationship. Relationships, you know what each other thinks what each other stands for, and you can begin to see each other as truly human and share that. Uh, and what Dr. King always says is nonviolence is directed against evil systems and oppressive policies, unjust acts, but not against persons. Uh, each act of reconciliation is one step closer to the beloved community. So I think I'm about to end, I think. Um, but these are wonderful principles, and they're also to some degree idealistic. And there are circumstances in which you have to weigh. There are circumstances in which they will work and circumstances in which they may not. And this is this is also a you know it's a problem for us as Buddhists as people of conscience, uh, you know what what may have worked in certain circumstances may not work in in other circumstances where the measure of violence that your opponent is willing to invoke is uh, where there are no limits on it. So I can't honestly say that I'm an absolute pacifist. Uh, 
but what I'll say is that I will do I will do my best to be in accord with what I've been trained to do. And I can only just try to deepen my training so that I won't be drawn into violence uh, by instinct or by, you know, some some deep and unseen part of my nature. I want to live in the beloved community. I've always wanted to live in the beloved community. And, you know, it's amazing to me that, you know, I've been living here at Berkeley Zen Center for 37 years. And uh, that's got to be in a, as close an approximation to the beloved community as I'm going to get uh, in this life. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. I, I continue to learn and we continue to have conflicts and they don't always work out great, but we have a container for doing that. And we do our best to respect each other and we're continuously learning. So I think that's where I will end for tonight. And I don't know if we have, if we have a few minutes for questions and answers, but uh uh, this is very compressed, I understand. Uh, my apologies for that, but this is the time we have. Thank you so much, Alan. Um, Mike, maybe you can help me call on people. You can raise your hand or go to the participants window and there's a raise hand function there. And, and we have, let's take some time. It's okay, Alan, let's take some time for discussion. Um, we can go later than we usually do Monday evenings. Uh, so anyone who has any comments, questions, responses to, you know, uh, so much wisdom in, in all that you've uh, shared with us. So please feel free. Comments, questions. I can start calling on people if you know. Oh, Jan raised her hand. Hi, Jan. Go ahead. Jan, you're muted. You, right. Um, okay. It's it's really interesting that uh, Alan brings up just the question of education because uh, the whole idea that we would spend a lot of money educating the people of Iraq or Afghanistan instead of killing them um, is uh, right there. You've got a problem because the education system, uh, who's going to decide what we're going to teach them? Well, that's and, right. Yeah. And, and so there would be a huge conflict for um, uh, nonviolent resolution of the problems of what is going to be taught. And I'm, te I'm thinking of two particular things. One is um, the, that children who are raised in the South in the United States, many of them are educated very strongly that um, the white race is the supreme race and that um, other races are, are simply not up to snuff. And this has been um, this has been called um, progress that that we impose progress on other um, on other cultures by calling them uh, savages or backward, and that we need to make them understand progress. And uh, and part of that is colonizing them. And yet we, there is India that was colonized by white English-speaking people. And um, the English speakers from India um, have shown that their race can fully integrate into our idea of progress. You know, this, is a, this has gotten to be a really big question about education and uh, colonization through education. Uh, anyway, I, I can just see so many conflicts arising 
when you say, we're, okay, we're going to spend some money, we're going to educate people, uh, that is a huge question. Right. And, yeah. Uh, okay. Go ahead. Well, the devil is in the details, right? Right. Um, yes. I, I totally agree with you. And, you know, you could also, one could say that, that everything that, uh, everything that I talked about uh, this evening was overly simplistic, which it is. Mm -hmm. um, but it had to be. The question, of, the question of educational content is, is incredibly important. Uh, and I have, you know, I have experience of it. Uh, you know, I have a fair, a fair amount of experience these days of working in India mm -hmm. with, with uh, communities that have not had any kind of educational advantages. Um, but what's interesting is to figure out how to reach people with what really brings them alive. And, you know, I've seen that happen in India. Uh, I think we've seen, there are transformations that we've seen in the culture of uh, the American South that are really, really remarkable from where, where it was, say, 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so I believe in the potentiality of that kind of change. Uh, and yet it's, it's true. The question in each of those places, we were talking about Iraq, Afghanistan, it's like, uh, it's very hard to throw off the shackles of colonialism. It's really hard to throw them off. Uh, even if that's your intention, uh, who's, you know, I see this in India because I see vestiges, vestiges of colonialism are, are very clear as well. Uh, and, you know, what at least I and others keep trying to, trying to uh, hammer home is not particular values, but I guess the value of critical thinking. Uh, and also the value of a value of equality or equity that that each person that that's a that's a value that can be taught whether it's bucking the trend or not anyway i don't have an answer for how this happens but your question is your question is really alive okay so by the way, hello. Hello. It's very lovely to see you, Ozan. And congratulations on becoming abbot of Berkeley Zen Center. Oh. Um, Thank you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really appreciated your reflection. And there's so much depth behind what you say. And, and I was thinking mostly about community in Zen world <laughs> and, you know, sort of thinking about starting from the bottom up and, you know, you've been 37 years at Berkeley Zen center, which is a place that, you know, I've lurked around a little bit and always felt very welcome there and also could feel a sense of community, even though I know sometimes, you know, like in any community, there's conflicts. And I just wondered if you had any suggestions for our disembodied little ancient dragon, who's, we're still like a baby or young Sangha and what you feel will help us cultivate beloved community and be able to bring that forth into the world. So thank you. Well, one thing, you know, one thing that, that I, that I feel about ancient dragon and I always really enjoy uh, being there and talking with you is that I feel that I certainly feel that Tigan and I have uh, very similar communitarian values that we were, we were sort of forged in the same 
in the same fire. Uh, and uh, so I, I appreciate that deeply. You know, just we've been dealing with this um, online community for two years now. It's, it's just mind-blowing. Um, I don't know what it's like for you guys, but actually our community is stronger. Um, we still, we're still not going to the Zendo. We haven't opened the Zendo. And, uh, you know, we have online sittings in Sashin. We have online Zazen. Uh, but we have community meetings. Uh, we have really try to make an effort to be transparent about the policy decisions that we're making uh, and to include people. And one of the artifacts of, of the pandemic is that our community has grown. It's grown geographically. Uh, there are a lot more younger people uh, and people feel part of it. You know, just there's an interesting dynamic like right now we're all sitting and we can see each other. You know, if we were in the Zendo, we wouldn't see each other. You know, you could see a couple people in your field of vision, right? But here we see each other. We see each other's faces. We see how we react and respond to things. Uh, we hear each other's voices pretty freely. And that's been a really good thing for us. Uh, and there's not going to be any uh, certainly isn't, we're not going to go entirely back. We're going to maintain some, some aspects of this online Sangha. But um, I think we've done it by really trying to maximize the lines of communication that, that we have and not letting people get isolated and you know reaching out to people that we don't see and some people do not like it which is totally understandable uh and some people are really tired of it but in general i think we've we've sustained community and, and in fact strengthened it so it can be done Thank you. Thanks. See, Ed? Yes. Thanks, Alan. Hagetso, did you want to say something else? I was abrupt. No? Thank you for that question. I enjoyed Alan's response. And I'm, I'm doing, thanks again, Alan. And I, I don't mean to burden anybody. And I'm, not, I'm going to stop doing this eventually, but I want to share an image because I have a question regarding the image for, for Alan. But I, is it, I'll be brief. Oh, this can be literally an image. So this is a renowned photograph of, of King's funeral. And I'm not sure where it took place. It might have been uh, in Georgia, I'm thinking. It was probably and in Atlanta. Atlanta, okay. Yeah. And um, we, we recognize the faces of many of the men walking near the near the uh, casket mm -hmm. much younger much younger then and i had a question regarding the the mules or the or the i think those are mules i never i don't know if they're donkeys mules or not horses because i think in southern culture you had a mule to work on in many rural areas the farm was a the mule was a necessary animal to have to be a farmer and a question regarding the fact that the casket is not aligned with the cart and its placement in the casket, in the, or in the, I don't know what that's called, a, a horse, a cart. And so if I were to show, if I were to show this image, and then I'm going to just, can I try and show another image? 
Sure. Okay. And I'm not sure how to do that. I'm going to close this one. Okay. I'm going to open this one and I'm going to show this one. Sorry. I'm going to be very fast here. This is Robert F. K.'s funeral, which has, has different has different features to it. Um, there's there's uh, there's representation of the different uh, branches of the military, and but it's also a cart. It's got wheels and so on. And then um, and then uh, just briefly two more, very fast. Uh, this is JFK's funeral, which, if we recall, was on a train. There was a funeral train mm-hmm. that traveled around around the country. But so, in this case, the carry the car- the thing that carried the body was the train, not not a wheeled, which I guess was a wheeled object. And then finally, very briefly, there's a Chicago artist named Kerry James Marshall, who's renowned, and this is one of his paintings, and. It's as a as a person who's in construction, the living room that's displayed here, portrayed here, is a very typical Chicago living room. I would say of the 1960s, right, early 70s, a bungalow with a front room, and uh, Carrie gives us a uh, a placard mourning the loss of the three of these three men, and he shows us that the resident of the home is an angel, and that she is uh, putting oh, yeah. flowers down on the coffee table mm. so my question is is to you in in the, in the realm of a, of a buddhist uh practice that this 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 occurrence of these three deaths and their corresponding dignity the dignity of their deaths in in american culture do we do we look at these uh this 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 concentration of experience, do we take anything from it? These three rapid fire, these three rapid events and their occurrence and how it had an impact on the American, maybe the American psyche or what is the Buddhist, a more Buddhist comprehension of this, if there is one? Well, that's, that's a, it's an interesting and complicated question. I don't know. Um, I think that for Dr. King, his funeral was conducted, that that image is, uh, his whole community came out. And it was not a community that was, uh, that had clear rules and regulations about how you, how you do a funeral in in terms of JFK's funeral? It was determined by the the military rules that applied to uh, the leader of the country and the head of the military. So, uh, uh, you know, each one of them has a different context. Uh, I think you know what's interesting about this one to me is that in we go back to 19th century uh, 18th and 19th century America basically the parlor which we're looking at here uh, was very rarely used and that was where you set out the body and in a sense that's it's kind of that's the way the space is being organized to me uh, uh and in fact, if you look, there's in memory of is written, uh, and then you have all of these figures in this kind of cloud-like structure. So these are differences of culture, and I don't know that there's more to say about it except that uh, the culture that you're in is determinant of. Uh, how you observe the death and what it, you know, in a sense, what it means to you. And, and, and just one, 
one brief comment to what you're saying. Certainly, we would we would consider the uh, the different expressions of mourning in those three certain those three or at least those two, uh, John and and uh, uh, oh my goodness, uh, King's uh, funerals as requiring each other in their how they took form, how they manifested. You could not have the one without the other in a way. Perhaps not. You know, I'm just to say, I'm thinking about this, uh, where the relevance of this to me right now is that we still have not had a funeral for my teacher. Um, Because he died last, he died a year ago in the midst of the pandemic. And there was no place or way to have a funeral for Sojin. And so I'm in the middle of trying to uh, line that up and actually figure out what are the appropriate elements of the funeral for him so that everyone is included. Uh, And uh, I'm learning a lot. Anyway, maybe we have time for one more. Or well, okay. at least go ahead. Okay, okay. next. Yeah. I I wanted to to comment on something that Ed said that I thought was about this uh, grieving along racial lines in some ways, um, and it reminded me of the story I've been going over from Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, where she talks about a plumber, a white plumber, who uh, was not doing his job and was sort of dismissing her. And she was in the midst of tremendous grief. And she was just about to give up. And she said, I need to connect with him somehow. And she said to him, you know, I lost my mother do you have a mother? And he spoke about his loss of his mother and ended up connecting in a significant way. Um, and I thought that this kind of loss is a unifying, can be a unifying factor and bring out our humanity. Right. I just thought that was one little riff on that. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. And that's a, you know, how we can connect is, really with our, our fundamental humanness. Uh, there's a story about the, uh, was it the um, peace treaty between Egypt and Israel with Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat. And they were at Camp David and it was a disaster. You know, after a week, it got nowhere. And they were literally packing up their bags and leaving. And uh, Begin and Sadat just happened to be walking in the in the yard outside uh, the compound together, and they were talking, and uh, ended up showing each other pictures of their grandchildren. And all of a sudden, things started to click. There was an opening. Uh, so we have to remember these skill. These are skillful means, right? Uh, and it's very easy in the midst of conflict to dehumanize the other person instead of looking for what are the what are the commonalities that we share. So, yeah, I think that's that's what I take away from that Wilkerson story, too. Thank you so much. If there's anybody else, uh, let's take time for one more comment or question or response, please.
Well, I'll just say thank you so much, Alan, for being here, thank for you. sharing thank this, you all. Uh, all, all of your study and wisdom about Dr. King. It's so important right now. And, um, you know, our country is really hurting. Yes, it is. And these divisions, how we proceed, I think, requires all of us to find kindness and uh, connection and compassion. So uh, all that you've said is really helpful. Thank you so much. And just to say it's really hard. You know, it's hard. It's hard to know how to love when you are seeing actions that seem to be dehumanizing. Uh, But we have to remember not to dehumanize and constantly make that effort to connect. David, before we close, you're muted. Uh, What's something that Hogetsu said brought up a memory. I remember you speaking at Upaya and talking about beloved community and that it's not about agreeing to disagree, but rather to find commonalities. And your story about Sadat and Begin finding commonalities, the the humanity of having grandchildren, or Hogetsu's story of the the plumber and and the woman, Wilkerson, and how the humanity of having lost their mothers. And it's a matter of finding our commonalities rather than looking for our differences. And that's something that you emphasized and it came out now. And I just want to thank you very much for your talk this evening. Thank you very, very much. Thanks, Dave. It's good to see you. And can I make one comment to what David was saying? Also, the common experience of death. We share, we all share deaths of loved ones. Yes. We're going to die ourselves. And, and, People we don't even know, their death has enormous emotional impact on us. Yeah. It lasts our entire remainder of lives. And thank you. Thanks, Ed.